Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. Welcome to our last show of 2023. Bill Gretchen, welcome to the show. Hello there. Hello. So I, we're we're here. Um, I, it's this year has gone by crazy fast in some ways, and it uh, has represented a lot of change for us. We're going to talk about this next year a little bit more, but you know, we lost one of our own this year. That's been kind of the big thing that we've been working through. Um, we've continued to produce. Now, on a more positive note, Gretchen, you finally gotten yourself relocated. So that's a that's a good thing that you've been wanting to do. So I mean, there's been it's been a weird year. I hope next year is a little more just uh, stable. So better. anybody that has seen this in our logo, this year was our tenth year. Well, as can happen in production, next year is going to be our tenth year because this would have been a terrible tenth year in many ways. So we're going to go ahead and uh, do that next year, and we will start production again in January sixth. So we're numbering uh, like Microsoft. Well. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, I love that that joke. I learned to you know count from Microsoft. Well, how did you do that? One three three point one one ninety five ninety eight two thousand, and then what was it? Seven eight and a, ten and eleven or something? Yeah. So I don't think we're going quite that uh, off the rails. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but we are going to have a second half of the tenth year. Why don't we call it that? <laughs> okay. Do over. So anyway, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll uh, get that. Uh, going a little bit more um, on another note, you know, we launched in Seattle. Our listeners at the Answer Seattle started hearing the show in November, so that was really cool. And we've got been getting a lot of feedback already. I really appreciate that. Please continue sending it in. Your questions and your comments are great, and we'll see what 2024 brings us. The next two weeks are going to be uh, holiday clip shows. In fact, it'll be the same holiday clip show for both weeks. So go ahead and check that out, and we will be back January 6th, like I said earlier, with new production for 2024. But during that time, the website's still there. You can check out the back episodes, userfriendly.show, send your questions, send your comments. Check us out on the ever-changing social media landscape. As soon as we figure <laughs> it out, we'll post stuff again. Um, and we are going to be bringing back our Tech Wednesday articles a little bit more next year. We never stopped doing it, but with the strike, the writer strike, we weren't able to do it for a long time. And then Gretchen, who is our writer, we got one article out and then you moved. So we weren't able to do any more. So that's going to be a thing again in 2024 on a much more regular basis. And Bill, I don't know. Are you planning any gaming stuff for next year? Uh, we'll see. All right. I like that. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. All right. There we are. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the news. And afterwards, we've got a great interview this week, which I'll tell you about at the end of the segment. What's in the news this week? Okay. Even NASA has that one rusty screw when working on equipment. What does that mean? Well, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever worked on a car or other things. I, I've run into this myself, too. It seems like there is always... Uh, that one screw that you just can't get out. And NASA is experiencing this with the material they got back from the asteroid. And oh. so they've been having some technical difficulties. So what's going on here is they've been able to recover and remove some of the material. They have to be careful with it because they don't want to contaminate it. Right. And the canister that it's in has 35 screws, and they have not just one, but two, quote, rusty screws, because two of them are stuck. And Ooh. they haven't been able to get them out. And uh, 
uh, you know, they're calling it, uh, it's kind of like Schrodinger sample. Yeah, Schrodinger sample. I'm still not able to pronounce that. I mean, I'm not Schrodinger's? Thank you. I was hoping Thank somebody you. would say it. <laughs> you, you mean like the, the, the guy who had the cat experiment, but he didn't yeah. really have a cat in the box and, and Sheldon noise. And they really about don't it. know what's in there. It's uh, an interesting thing. Now, they've gotten 70 grams so far, so it's not completely been blocked from them. But I can only imagine on something like this how frustrating that would be. And you can't drill the screws because the drill bit or the you know dust from it, the metal dust, uh-huh. could contaminate the sample. So we'll see how they get that figured out. Now, that being said, they got a lot of material back and they're finding some very interesting things that they didn't expect, including the combination of the materials that have made up the dust they've gotten out so far. So as soon as they get their other screws out of the container, I'm sure we will get a better explanation of what's actually in there. BitHuman introduces lifelike AI agents for enterprises. So, you know, I think somehow this makes me think of the Xbox 360 a little bit. When they launched that, you had a menu, but later your um, avatar, I guess it is, kind of danced around when you would select them and all this stuff. I always thought it looked goofy, uh, <laughs> but that's kind of that's just kind like of the what paper this, clip. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, the paper clip is a little worse. I mean. I don't know what it is with Microsoft and stuff like that, though. They just, uh, and it could be cool. And and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to post comments. Oh, we love the Xbox 360. But I don't know. Just when I looked at it, it it almost looked like your avatar was, I don't know, hanging from the wall or something. It was just the weirdest thing. Anyway, that being a little bit of an aside from all of this, BitHuman is looking at adding to the AI landscape agents that seem like and present human-like experiences. So this would be something along the lines of instead of chatting with an AI, you could actually talk to the AI and it would seem like supposedly, if this goes the way they are saying it might, be like just talking to another human. So we'll see how that ends up working okay. out. The, the eyebrow is raising on me, you know, I, one <laughs> eyebrow goes up. Mm. You know? <laughs> All right. So anyway. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Voyager 1 stops communicating with Earth. Again. So what's this about? Mm. Well, okay, so the Voyager 1, Voyager 2 spacecraft launched in the 70s for what was originally a five-year mission. This sounds like the original Star Trek a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, have gone well beyond it. They're the only human vehicles that are in and beyond the heliopause. Uh, which is the magnetic barrier between our solar system and interstellar space. So NASA has been working to keep the probes alive just because this is absolutely amazing, unexpected, and they're getting back a lot of information. But after 46 years and 24 uh, billion kilometers, 15 billion miles, um, I wonder if that's beyond my EV range. Anyway, it is starting to have more and more problems where the computers are having trouble. They've been shutting stuff down incrementally to save power and that type of a thing, and they still are in communication. However, as of November 14th, it looks like Voyager's communication back to Earth has been trapped in a loop, Mm. and it can still receive and carry out commands transmitted, but with this, there is no information of relevance being returned back to Earth, so they're trying to figure out what's going on. Something like this did happen back in 1981. They think it's probably a different cause. The other thing of it is, is they're having to use tech manuals and stuff on the way this is built because getting to the original team and all that kind of thing is no longer an option in most cases. 
Oh, wow. And the other part of it, too, is trying to fix this has the added, you know, Bill, you and I talked about lag on gaming. Imagine if your leg was 22.5 hours to send your command and another 45 hours to get the answer. That'd be some lag. Oh, that sounds like my old internet. (laughs) Some days that sounds like my current internet. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm having that too. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. They'll probably be able to get this fixed, although we might need to hire aliens to do it. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, um, little gray alien AAA or something, you know? Disney Plus removes beloved Marvel series without warning. So one of the downsides to streaming media is this kind of thing happens, that streaming media service will often remove content, often without warning. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the reasons, in addition to the password thing, that I don't have a subscription to Netflix anymore because the stuff I liked kept disappearing. In this case, it's the series that was uh, originally run from 2008 to 2009, the spectacular Spider-Man something that is well-liked. They haven't given an explanation as to why this has happened, but at the end of the day, uh, it has. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if anything comes out of this or if just suddenly it comes back. Now, Disney Plus offers a huge amount of content with all of the different franchises they own, and it not being that unusual to move remove certain things but at the end of the day, this seemed like kind of an odd one to do. Although Disney has some stuff going on there too, and I think this is kind of relevant to this topic. For anybody that doesn't know, Disney owns a lot of other franchises. So uh, ABC being one of the bigger ones, they're wanting to buy the remaining interest that they don't own in Hulu, the system Hulu, hmm. ESPN. I mean, you know, some of these big names. But what's happening is that what was worth a lot of money not so long ago is really dropped off in value. As a for example, Disney bought ABC in 1995 for around 19 billion with a B dollars. And right now they think it's valued at 4.5 billion. Now 4.5 wow. billion is still a coffee at Starbucks, but it is definitely what one quarter of the price. Wow. And they're calling ESPN, which has a current valuation of 30 billion, that they view it as a melting iceberg. And what's going on with a lot of this is the fact that as things change and traditional cable-based television is really something that's on its way out, we hit more than 50% of consumers of pay TV are now streaming this year. So that's a pretty big milestone. It changes things. So like the Disney Channel is no longer really worth the investment. Disney Plus is now where it is. But a lot of these other things that they have no longer can hold the specific, you know, I don't want to say monopoly because that's a bad word. We're going to talk about that in the next segment, but they don't have the ability to lock it down. So as a, for example, it used to be if you subscribe to cable television, whether you were a sports person or not, you had to pay for ESPN. Those were the channels that were on there. You did not have a choice. Now, if you're not a sports fan, you can subscribe to other services. They may not offer that and cost less, but now ESPN and Disney don't automatically get that subscriber rate from a lot of people because they can choose to get out of it. So that's where some of these problems are coming from with the value. And it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I think they will do just fine and relaunching or continuing to relaunch for a streaming world probably will eventually disappear from conventional television at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, and this includes a lot of other things. Cable networks like FX, National Geographic is another Disney thing. Yeah. And the list kind of goes on. So this will make a huge change in how things are done. 
All right. Speaking of Disney, um, Disney's Space Mountain to close permanently this summer. And I'm, yeah, this and before is, I- I, this caught my <laughs> attention because when I was a kid, I had friends who'd gone to Disneyland and they were so excited about Space Mountain. I remember Space Mountain. I love Space Mountain. That was one of the things you saw that in the haunted house and some of these classic mm-hmm. iconic rides. Yeah. Uh, Space Mountain originally opened in 1975. It's a roller mm-hmm. coaster taking guests through a thrilling high-speed journey through space, according to the description. And uh, it's a part of many of their theme parks, Disneyland, Tokyo Disneyland, Paris, Hong Kong. The one that's closing is the one in Tokyo, so it's not all of them. Oh, however, okay. <laughs> there is a however here. Uh, Space Mountain has uh, undergone... I don't know, a bit of a transformation in that it switched back and forth, at least in Disneyland, California. And Disneyland uh, or Disney fans will have to let us know if this is happening elsewhere. Between Space Mountain and uh, what was it, Hyperspace Mountain, which is a rethemed version of the same ride for Star Wars. So, and it seems like sometimes it's one way and sometimes it's the other. So, hopefully, we can get some more information on that. Yeah, so, I, I just remember it was supposed to be all in the dark. You, you've yeah. been on it? Oh, I've been on Space Mountain several times. Yeah, a long oh, time okay. ago. I know the ride's been redone since then, mm-hmm. but it, it's still the original ride, but they just updated a number of things. But yeah, it, it was fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it. My parents did not, um, <laughs> but it, uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, it's kind of weird to see it go away in Tokyo. Tokyo Disneyland is completely doing their, uh, redoing their Tomorrowland area. So this is part of it. They're going to debut the new one in 2027. And one of the things about something like Tomorrowland, I can only imagine, because obviously what would have been in a space like that when Disneyland opened versus the time that has passed versus now would be very different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so redoing it, that kind of makes sense. Retro Retro Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland. Retro Tomorrowland. (laughs) And and that may not be the goal they're going for. So So it'll be interesting to see what comes up here. But uh, yeah, they're going to be doing a goodbye ceremony to Space Mountain this summer. So check that out on Disney's website if you want to go see it. There's going to be some celebration before it closes down. And if you still want to see Space Mountain, you might be going to Hyperspace Mountain. So that'll be interesting. I have not seen Hyperspace Mountain. I haven't been back to Disneyland in a while. Uh, I haven't hit the lottery to be able to do it, but uh, from the feedback and stuff I've read, people like both. So, mm-hmm. Chinese AI startup Zero One Dot AI looks to raise two hundred okay. million. AIs have been the topic of the year in many ways in the technology world. So we have another AI that's looking to raise money. So what uh, was kind of what I thought when I read this and reached out to find out about it the first time. They're trying to catch up with OpenAI, which is ChatGPT, and it seems like everybody is, including Google and Microsoft, on this side of the pond and others elsewhere. But the difference about this startup is they're looking to release an open source version of AI, which is something that's somewhat unusual. Not completely, but it is a unique way. ChatGPT, they guard the code and everything. You can't get to it. Open source, for anybody that doesn't know, that means that you can download the source code and modify it for your own needs. So uh, whether or not this is completely a good thing or some of the stuff that could come out of that are to be seen, but that's what's going on here. Now, I have said this before. I am not of the mindset that we're going to end up in a Terminator world, um, although there are days that you might feel like it. But it's still interesting to see if 
this kind of technology gets this kind of investment and is available for anybody to modify, what would actually happen? So I guess that's the experiment of this. Internet plot highlights tactics used by cruel Karakurt crime gang. So what's this about? So this is an expose that's coming out to try and educate people, I think, on the whole deal with um, cyber criminals because the number of instances of things like ransomware and other things of that nature have just been going through the roof. And it's becoming a problem. And this is one gang that they went through and kind of highlighted everything they do. Now, interestingly enough, this gang is not ransomware. What they'll do is break into a system, download all the information, then start harassing the employees to send them money or they'll release customer lists or credit cards or something of that nature. But they don't do the ransomware part of it. Ransomware being that they encrypt or damage the computer systems, uh, encrypt the data that's on them, will only unlock them if you send them money and they don't always actually unlock them. And you don't know what software is being used anyway, so it screws it up any way that you look at it. So, so this is just plain old blackmail? This is just plain old blackmail. I think that's a good word for it. And there's a lot of ways that they've been able to get in. Cisco, AnyConnect, VPN user accounts, which have been buzzy, buzzy, buggy, um, you know, stuff like that. SonicWall VPN appliances, other firewalls and different things. And then Log4Shell, which is a... Microsoft thing in the Windows operating system, which still appears to be problematic. They tried to patch it, but it's a uh, utility that allows you to go in and do different things with the computer, but it does open it up and it seems to be remotely accessible. So that being the case, what they basically do is they get into the system. They use zip, 7-zip usually to compress files, and then a transfer app like FileZilla, which is an FTP transfer utility that's open source and a lot of people use, including us to be able to send the information up to a terabyte in size in some cases and then get to it that way. Now, FileZilla is not screwed up. Neither is 7-Zip, but those are the utilities they use once they get into the system and are able to get the information and send it out. And then after that, they repeatedly call and email the victim's company's employees, business partners, and customers to build pressure to pay the ransom. This is always done by Bitcoin. And these demands can range. The minimum we've seen is $25,000. The highest was $13 million and everything that's pretty much in between on that. So, again, and it's just one of these things that a lot of this requires vigilance because our technology is not caught up. And it seems like when they do fix things and there's other problems that are exploited, but it's the age old. If you get an email that doesn't seem right, don't click on links in it. Don't go to websites that you don't know what they are. If you get an email that says your account's been canceled and you need to get a hold of us immediately, or the other one that I've been seeing is uh, from purportedly from Amazon, even though in a lot of cases they've managed to spell the word Amazon wrong, which has been interesting. But uh, it'll say something like, uh, "We've just processed your order for you know one thousand five hundred ninety nine dollars." In the case of the one I just got for an Apple computer or something. Uh, you will receive it shortly. If there's any problem with this order, or if you did not place this order, click this link or call this number. And if you click the link or call the number, it sounds like Amazon, but of course you're talking to the bad guys who then, through a number of different techniques, will get personal information and try to part you from your money or cause other problems. So the, so, so the answer to the Amazon thing would be to ignore the email, go to your Amazon website and go, you know, Check your own Check it out. Stuff. And this is true of anything like that. If you get an email from a company 
And in a lot of cases, they might be legit, but in a lot of cases, they're not. And in all cases, I highly recommend don't do anything from the email. Go to the company's website. If it's Amazon, I got one from SiriusXM that was like this uh, in other places. Go to the actual website where you type it into the browser, not from a link anywhere, and Mm -hmm. then either contact them through chat or call the phone number that's on the website. Don't believe anything that's in that email. 99% of the time, you're going to find out it's it's a fraud thing. And you know, and other companies, I think, need to learn lessons from this because, Gretchen, you know, you're selling that house mm-hmm. and we've run into a few things. We're going to be partnering with our friends over at Smart Money next year to talk about this in some more detail. Okay. But one of the things that I've noticed from this is that your escrow company actually did call you on the phone wanting payment information for something, which they really shouldn't do because that's the exact same thing the bad guys do. Now, it was legitimate. Yeah. But we didn't respond to it because it's like, this is really weird. So I think you or your mom or whoever it was called back the number that you had to uh, deal with it from that standpoint and figure out if it was correct. So just be careful out there. The holiday season is a big time for fraud and stolen money and that kind of thing. And just know this, that you are never legitimately going to be getting money from anybody in Nigeria. (laughs) Um, That's one big fraud thing that's been around for a long time or anything else that seems or feels a little bit too good to be true. The other place they're targeting right now is if you're applying for a job, your application goes out and it's pretty open. You know, you send it up to Monster or Indeed or some of these services, employers can get access to it. And they're using that personal information to say, hey, there's a job, call us back. And then they get other information from you. So there's all kinds of little techniques to this. Just be careful. It's not something that's going to get better anytime soon either. So we'll go from there. Now, speaking of selling houses, just something I wanted to comment on is do you, if you're looking at a house or just browsing or that type of thing and like the furniture that's been used to stage it, unfortunately, you're probably not going to be able to buy it because it's probably not real. And mm-hmm. Gretchen, I noticed they did that on some of your photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think of it? Um, you know, I always have mixed feelings. Uh, I think um, they did a nice job on on the ones for me. Um, though I often do not like, um, staged, you know, computer staged photos, but I'm very different when it comes to looking at homes and, and photos because the minute I see that it's been altered, I'm turned off, but that's because I've worked with photos in a long time. But other people might give them a good idea of what the space should look like. Yeah. And the the realtor, who is an extremely ethical person, which I appreciate that put this up, the photos are side by side. It's not like they're trying to fool anyone, Mm -hmm. although others I've seen kind of do that. And and in this case, I think they look pretty uh, real. They're not hinky. You know, they fit the room properly. They're at the right angle, the right vantage point and stuff. So that's that's kind of cool. But it's interesting to see where this is going. So I like the the colors they chose. Yep. True, true. And it, it, it shows it off. All right. After the break, we have an interview with Pete Sepp, the head of the National Taxpayers Union. And it's uh, going to be interesting. We're going to be talking about some of the uh, technical antitrust litigation that's been out there. So don't go away. We'll be back after the break. Have you seen him? He's from the Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Check out our website, userfriendly.show. That's where you can get all of our back episodes, play the podcasts and the 
questions and comments that you guys seem to really love to send that we really appreciate. It's all out there. We're going to be taking a little break over the holidays. We'll be back January 6th. We're going to have a clip show coming up for you for the next two weeks. But the website's still there, and we are actually still here to answer stuff that you send in, at least via email. So check it out again, userfriendly.show, your one stop for everything user-friendly 2.0. So Gretchen, Bill, have you guys heard, I'm sure you have, about all of this technical antitrust litigation? A little bit. Heard about so it. So we've been, you know, seeing different things where the government is going after, you know, Microsoft with the merger they're having there and Google. Uh, Google Play Store, Apple, same type of a thing. And one of the other ones has been, is Google Search a monopoly? And we've been seeing a lot of the news about some of these different things. And joining us here in just a moment is going to be Pete Sepp from the National Taxpayers Union, who is going to be talking a little bit about this from kind of both standpoints, where these things are done to protect consumers, to prevent monopolies, but also from the other side where it's kind of politically motivated to go after companies when, in fact, they may not be committing antitrust violations at all, and a little bit about what determines that and how these things can't come together and where we're headed with that. And one of the more peculiar things was a comment that was made during the Google case that it was claimed that maybe we should use Russia's search engine as a framework for how we do things in the United States. Now, spoiler alert, I will tell you, I completely disagree with that idea. But the comment was made, and we'll go into a little bit of detail during the interview on what that was. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our interview, Peter Sepp, National Taxpayers Union. Joining me now is Pete Sepp with the National Taxpayers Union. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. So let's just dive in and start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about the National Taxpayers Union and the work that you guys do? Yeah, sure. National Taxpayers Union was founded all the way back in 1969. Our mission, to work for lower, fairer, simpler taxes for everybody, less wasteful government spending at all levels, and accountability from public officials at all levels of government. We've seen a lot of action in those 54 years that we've been around. Sounds like you're a busy person. Let's Let's dive into some of this stuff. Uh, one of the things on here is the antitrust search trial. We've been hearing a lot over the last year about, I would say, aggressive antitrust action from the Biden administration, uh, including the one that just wrapped up around Google. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what your views are on it? Sure. It would, I think, be helpful to explain why a taxpayer group ought to be involved in this issue of antitrust and competition policy. and. We have been since the mid-1990s, actually. And there are really several reasons. For one, there's simply the expenditure of public dollars on antitrust litigation and competition policy. After all, the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice on the federal uh, level alone, uh, they have budgets uh, of more than $500 million, uh, quite a lot of money, even in this town. But there's also the more important angle of what happens if the federal government and state attorneys general generate these lawsuits on the grounds that consumers are being harmed when they really aren't, and innovation in our economy ends up slowing down. After all, taxpayers have benefited from the innovation of the tech and other sectors in ways that we don't often think about when 
you consider cloud data storage, for example, that has made all of these massive federal data centers that once existed in the 1980s and 90s obsolete, and you have a much cheaper solution. Same with the development of internet-based services and AI interaction to provide chatbots in government agencies. Those make the interaction between taxpayers and the governments that they want services from a lot more efficient and cost-effective. And so if governments go after small or large tech companies and say, you're not acting competitively, you're acting like monopolies, and those governments are wrong, we all end up suffering. That's a central question here because, after all, when antitrust laws were created in the uh, so-called trust-busting era back uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the philosophy was that the consumer was being harmed by collusion between large companies. They were conspiring to raise prices on consumers. And yet, in these modern antitrust suits against Google and Facebook and Amazon and others, it's very difficult to prove that consumers are being harmed by any of the practices that the government's attorneys are alleging. You know, now that's an interesting approach because it's a little different than I would have thought about it. But yeah, that's absolutely spot on because you kind of I don't know if you kind of assume the government's going to be right. If you do, you're probably 100 years out of date. But from the same standpoint, yeah, if they're going after somebody that isn't really deserving of it, that could stifle innovation and that could you know, cause a lot of uh, cooling on people even wanting to get involved. Uh, so on the Google lawsuit, what is the status of the trial now and where are we at on that timeline? So both sides in the trial have made their arguments and the judge in the case, Judge Meta, is now considering all of those arguments in advance of a ruling. This is what's called a bench trial. There wasn't actually a jury involved here, but there were hundreds of witnesses and depositions and exhibits, studies, all kinds of pieces of evidence introduced in this case, which began in 2020. It was launched under the Trump administration. State attorneys general also launched their own action, and both um, Attorney General Rosenblum and Attorney General Ferguson in Washington state were involved in that suit. The state suit and the federal suit by the Department of Justice were both merged, and they had seven arguments alleging Google's anti-competitive behavior. Well, Judge Maida threw out four of those seven arguments. And uh, one of those four was the contention that uh, Google's search results were kind of biased toward certain people making purchases of ads online and against others. Uh, That was Yelp and TripAdvisor saying that our search results weren't being properly prioritized when people entered terms about travel or restaurant reviews and the like. Well, the judge threw that out and said, that's really not an competitiveness issue or a consumer harm issue. And what's remaining are three issues. And the biggest one of those is whether the fact that Google's search engine is preloaded on many of Apple's devices 
was anti-competitive behavior. Google and Apple apparently came to some arrangement to have the Google search engine preloaded on iPhones and other types of devices. Uh, That central contention by the governments, of course, is also backed by some of Google's competitors. And here again is the quandary of modern antitrust law. Is this about billionaires getting the government to sue other billionaires, or is it about the average consumer? And the testimony raged back and forth during the Google trial about what really was anti-competitive in Google's and Apple's, frankly, behavior here. And the government really struggled to try to prove a case. After all, Google's search engine is free. Of course, there are people who pay to advertise on it. Some would argue that the personal data that gets collected has a price. Uh, We could take a whole hour explaining whether that's the case or not. But the strange contentions here, um, among them from, uh, well, Microsoft saying, we spent billions of dollars trying to compete with Google's search engine and get on Apple's devices as the first one, and we couldn't. Um, There was also the contention that, well, uh, people can pretty easily make Google their non-default option and select another kind of search engine to put on their device. And again, we're asking these questions here. Well, we're sorry that Microsoft couldn't build the better mousetrap here. They've certainly done it in other places, but how is that? anti-competitive? How is that against the law that one company competes with the other and one company loses? I'm just kind of processing what you're saying here because that's actually a good point. We're seeing a lot of this type of thing. Uh, You know, we're talking about Google search, but there's been the thing with things like Play Store and all of that's been coming up. And uh, the National Association of Realtors is another big one that's been on the forefront the last couple of months. It's a very similar idea. So let me just ask you this point blank or, you know, in the, in the past, or like you said, when, when we were opening in just now that most of these lawsuits are motivated by the idea of harm on consumers. Now, are you point blank saying this time around that that's not the case? I certainly don't see the consumer harm being proven in this case. And I think the government, uh, both the federal government, the uh, Department of Justice and the state attorneys general participating in this case really struggled to prove consumer harm. And so they kind of switched tracks and said, well, if Google is the dominant search engine and other companies have been unable so far to build something that can rival it in terms of number of users or revenues or whatever measurement you care to use, then that's a problem and that's a violation of law. Again, if you go back to the history of antitrust law, though, and this doctrine that's been around in the courts for the better part of 40 years now called the consumer welfare standard, well, what part of consumer welfare is actually being harmed here as opposed to the welfare of competitors who spent a lot of money and lost the competition game? I I can also kind of look back on this since we've been involved in these antitrust issues since the 1990s when the government was going after Microsoft and having a hard time proving its case. 
when you look back on all of these, it's incredible how quickly the private sector economy, and uh, I'm not just talking about tech sector here, all kinds of sectors, how quickly it evolves well past what regulators expect. I mean, when uh, the antitrust authorities went after brown shoe, you might remember Buster Brown kid shoes, they went after them for antitrust. By the time there was a ruling in the case, that company had gone bankrupt. Uh, by the time IBM's verdict had come down, it was no longer the dominant company in uh, computers. When the New York Times was fretting back in 2014 that there might be just one social media company dominating the internet, back then they said, MySpace was going to rule the world, and obviously it didn't. I think what's going to happen here, uh, whatever the verdict might be, is that Google can either keep innovating and keep a big market position, or somebody else is going to come along and they're going to end up being not as competitive. I mean, you're already seeing that with people using Amazon or TikTok or search functions. Something else may come along. Now, artificial intelligence, AI-based applications may indeed overtake Google's traditional business model and its search practices. Uh, we don't know that. Government regulators don't know that. But what we do know is that change is the constant here. And antitrust law has a hard time keeping up with that unless it's very tightly focused on consumer harm. Well, and it seems like motivated from the right position, too. I mean, you know, just and I'm, I'm just thinking back some of the other things. Another big one that we came out of was the whole Dish Network thing, you know, where they were going to rule the cable TV. And it seems like what really developed out of that was a much better way to be able to get that kind of service through a completely different technology. And I think that's kind of along the lines of what you're saying here. And, and you know, as far as search engine business, I sort of remember a site called Yahoo from a, a while back that. They're still out there, but it, you know things change exactly as you're saying, and and that totally makes sense. All right, let me ask you another question because this is one of the more bizarre things. When I saw this, was the government citing Russia as a model framework for America's search engine market? What is this? <laughs> yes, this this came up during the trial when the question was raised. Well, if there were some kind of perfect world where Google would have much more competition for search, what would it look like? And the Department of Justice suggested, well, look what they do in Russia. There's uh, a whole thing there called Yandex. And uh, when you want to go online in Russia, you're confronted with a single page that asks you which of the following search engines you wish to use for your search. And uh, that was held up as some kind of model for the United States to emulate kind of not really uh, noticing the fact that however many search engines exist in Russia right now, almost all of them are surveilled by the Russian government. <laughs> and your privacy as a user is uh, quite questionable. And so what we're asking uh, when the government poses uh, that kind of theory is, well, how is that somehow a model for us to emulate here in the United States. I, I, I just don't see why having choice for choice's sake when the government still effectively oversees it all, 
makes consumers better off. Right. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, the details that don't seem to get brought into these things uh, do give a little more context. All right. So let me ask you a little bit more of a broad strokes question. I know that the uh, National Taxpayers Union, or at least I've been told, has been doing extensive pollings on the priorities of the state attorney general. Uh, and where their resources are directed. Where does all this antitrust and so on stack up in their priority list? Yeah, very low among voters. Uh, We've done polling in uh, nearly half a dozen states on this topic, Democrats and Republicans, and it seems that going after tech companies with antitrust uh, or companies of any kind for antitrust is a very low priority. Um, We rotated uh, quite a number of functions that attorneys general normally have with uh, those being told and asked them where they would rank that as a priority. And it turns out about 75% of the responses of what a good priority for an attorney general should be centered on four things, cracking down on human trafficking, prosecuting criminals, uh, prosecuting companies that gouge consumers uh, either during the pandemic or disasters or some other kind of emergencies and protecting consumers from fraud. I mean, those four seem basic functions. And uh, that's where 75% of the priorities uh, of those polled came in. Um, Barely 3% (laughs) was uh, investigating companies for possible antitrust violations. And I think that makes sense. I mean, uh, prior to our interview here, I was looking on the website of um, A.G. Ferguson, and uh, uh, he announced uh, that there was a settlement of uh, price gouging between um, companies that process chicken and fish. And uh, I imagine many residents in his state would say, well, yeah, all right, Uh, that might be a legitimate function of an attorney general. Make sure that Consumers uh, weren't being harmed by collusion. Nothing wrong with that. But I doubt they would agree that uh, the attorney general should be investing a lot of resources in suing companies over antitrust. You know, it seems like the priority would be based on the person sitting in the chair in the individual state. And one of the things that's happening in Oregon here is that our attorney general has announced that she's not running for reelection in 2024. Um, do you think that's going to change how Oregon's dealing with this? And do you see in general the candidate really kind of steering the ship on that? It's possible. Now, um, generally, when a new attorney general comes into office, they kind of take an inventory of the cases that are still on their docket and they determine, well, uh, which ones do we want to emphasize uh, in our uh, new administration? It's possible that a a new attorney general might say, well, how about we concentrate on some of the basics, price gouging suits, uh, protecting consumers from fraud and prosecuting criminals, instead of joining in on these antitrust crusades, which increasingly seem to be more exotic in terms of the legal theories they propose and are losing propositions for governments. I mean, Uh, The federal government has already lost its uh, case against Facebook meta. Uh, They're uh, um, maybe on the ropes when it comes to uh, this Google case. There's an action underway against Amazon, which has 
even more bizarre theories of uh, competitiveness problems. Uh, there, the FTC is defining what the market is as online mega superstores, whatever that means, and then saying Amazon dominates it, so we're going to sue. They may even be looking into this merger between um, uh, Albertson and Kroger, a couple of grocery stores, and there they're arguing the exact opposite. Well, we don't care if uh, a merger occurs uh, in order to have them compete with online uh, grocery firms, you know, Amazon or, or uh, Walmart. Um, we think it's anti-competitive. And, and so the government keeps contradicting itself in arguing many of these cases. So let me ask you another question, and I think this might be one that you, you probably know off the top of your head. Litigation's expensive. I mean, anybody that's ever been involved in any of these things, whether it's civil or otherwise, who gets stuck with the bill? It's the taxpayers, right? Yes, ultimately. And that's an important uh, matter. Of course, uh, there could be multi-billion dollar settlements involved in some of these uh, antitrust cases to offset the budgets of the litigators. But in many cases, they're going down blind alleys and winding up at dead ends. And uh, I think that in many of these cases against tech and other companies, that's exactly what's going to happen. We see parallels between some of the pointless litigation that the Internal Revenue Service engages in with taxpayers and what the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice and the Attorneys General are doing with these antitrust cases. So, and we've kind of segued into this a little bit, but more of a 10,000 foot view. Do you think this is going to affect the future of regulation or are we just going to keep kind of going in a uh, bind here? I think that eventually with enough losses and enough judges standing up and saying, look, proving harm to consumers is a sensible place from which to begin all of these cases rather than sorting out which competitor as a beef with what other competitor. Uh, once judges start doing that and start ruling enough against these lawsuits, then the FTC and the Department of Justice and the Attorneys General are going to have to go back to the drawing board and say, yeah, concentrating on the fundamentals here does make sense, and uh, we need to be more careful in the kind of litigation that we bring. Uh, I hope that happens because. In many cases, they are pursuing theories that are stretching the powers of competition regulators so far that they go well beyond what most analysts would think was the intent of Congress in making some of these antitrust laws. Congress, for its part, needs to get involved and provide more clarification. Again, parallel to the tax world. They hand over so much authority to the IRS to write the regulations and rules backing up the statutory laws. We find ourselves going as much to IRS comment hearings as we do hearings before Congress when it comes to tax laws because of that kind of interaction. All right. So if our listeners want to find out more information on the National Taxpayers Union or you, where do they go online? 
And can they, they search for it through Google after this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> they can they can use Google, DuckDuckGo, Amazon, TikTok, whatever they'd like to find <laughs> us. But uh, the easiest way is to just type NTU, our initials for National Taxpayers Union, NTU.org, and uh, you'll find us. Sounds great. And we'll include that on our social media. Pete, thank you so much for this information. This has been super informative. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I hope we can chat again soon. Pete Sepp, the National Taxpayers Union. Well, I'll be interested to see how all of that develops in 2024. Kind of uh, build into that and see what there's going to be out there. All right. Well, to everybody, have a wonderful holiday. Have a happy new year. Have a safe new year. We want everybody to come back in January. January 6th will be our next live show. And again, in the meantime, check us out, userfriendly.show. And until next year, this is User Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.